Hi, good morning, church. My name is Danielle Couch, and I am a covenant partner here. And this week, we continue our series in Isaiah, Ruin to Restoration. God's redemptive work is powerful enough to bring renewal and restoration to all of life. We have seen how God comforts and strengthens us in ruin by his word and his work as he, is, as he promises restoration, guaranteed by his presence with us in our ruin. This week, we will see how God's completed work will lead to a new song for our lives, a song of salvation and celebration. Hear the eternal and powerful word of the Lord. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Qatar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in card idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Please remove any distractions from our life, and especially from the one who speaks. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us your work and your word, that we might sing your song of salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I add my greetings to those that you've already heard, uh, and I hope that you keep your Bibles open. If you don't have them open, we're going to dig into some specific uh, parts of Isaiah chapter 42. Um, It's right after Isaiah uh, chapter 41. So it's, it's, if you can't find it, if you go all the way to Isaiah 43, just go one chapter back. It's just right there. Uh, it's on page 893 of my Bible. I have really should have written down what page it's on on the Bibles that are on your row. We're going to dig in and we're going to continue our series in Isaiah, Ruined to Restoration. Uh, it's a phenomenal series. I love it. Uh, it is speaking to my heart. We have seen how God comforts us 
and he strengthens us. He strengthens us in our ruin. We are fallen people that live in a fallen world, and his word and his work comforts us and strengthens us. Uh, his promises of restoration are guaranteed by his presence with us in what we are going through. And this week, we're going to see how God is doing a new thing how he's done a new thing, and how we have a new song of salvation. Now, Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, uh, they really are a section of Isaiah that is very rich soil for the New Testament. I'm going to argue that you're going to know Jesus more fully. You're going to know the New Testament better when you spend time studying this section. Uh, for instance, if you look down in your Bible, uh, verse 3 of chapter 42, we didn't read it, uh, but he's talking about the servant. And he says, A bruised reed I will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench out. Now, who's he talking about in that passage? Now's the time when our Sunday school answer is the right answer. Who's, who's that a description of? That's right, yeah. In San Antonio, look, you're talking about uh, Sunday mornings, you can just say the word Jesus, you're right, like 75% of the time. If you're talking about breakfast and you say breakfast taco, you're right about 75% of the time, all right? So it's not too difficult around here. But you can see that's a description of Christ in, in Matthew chapter 12. And this, this is very characteristic of this section. Uh, and and we're, you're going to find not only fertile soil for the New Testament, but also this section when you study it personally and individually, chapters 40 to 66 on your own in preparation for worship, uh, that it's also an anchor. It's anchored in the Old Testament further back than just Isaiah. For instance, a song of salvation, what we're going to talk about today, having a new song in salvation, it is something that, that is commanded by God when we really understand the work of God as a people of God. But it comes uh, to be a normal thing for people who have experienced the salvation of God. You can go back to uh, Exodus 15 and you see Moses. All, most of us think of Moses as a, as a, a guy with a long beard that, that led people through a desert for 40 years and he was sweaty and smelly. Uh, but it turns out he could sing. He could sing pretty well. And we, we have the passages on the screen at the beginning of, of the servant's song. Let's read this together. Can you read it with me? This is, the, this is the beginning of his song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. Let me hear it. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Read it, church. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. <laughs> Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You see, it's normal for God's people to sing after they experience God's salvation. And we see this not only from the lips of Moses, the chapter goes on, but we see it when we get to the book of Judges and different judges sing like Deborah. And when we get to the historical books, uh, women like Hannah sing when God uh, fulfills his promise to her. Uh, we see it all through the Psalms when, when warriors like David sing of God's salvation. When we get to the New Testament, uh, we see women like Mary singing God's salvation. And it really is the thread that runs through Scripture, climaxing in Revelation. 
When the song of salvation is sung by people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. One thing that's characteristic for all the backdrop of these psalms, songs is that God is an infinite God. Much like he ruled over the Red Sea and parted and triumphed over the enemies of God's people. He rules infinitely, but he works intimately. The God who has created all things, he wants you to know his saving power today. He saves a people through a representative. That representative in, in, in the case of, uh, of the Pentateuch was Moses, who led them through. All they had to do was believe, have faith in the word of God. They could walk through on dry ground. And Moses led them. Uh, and the ultimate salvation for God's people comes through the representative, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see today that servant is a representative of his people. He saves individually, but his glory goes globally. He saves a nation, but it's good news for all nations. And in every situation, God gets the glory. This is what we're going to see. Isaiah was a prophet, and he prophesied this in about 701 BC. And he's speaking to a people who would be taken out of Jerusalem, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 25, taken to Babylon in 586. Over 120 years, God, God is speaking through the prophet words of hope, words of strength. Even as they're in the midst of a life that is full of devastation, they can hear and believe the word and the promises of God and know that there will be restoration. And as God spoke to people decades and centuries off, he speaks to you now this morning. And when we rightly understand the promises of God and the word of God as the people of God, then we can join the chorus of the song of salvation. Men like James, the brother of Jesus, who would say, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Men like Paul, who in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13 said, you can find joy in every circumstance, in plenty and in want, in hunger and in fullness. Everywhere you find yourself, you can find joy. He was the man that in Acts chapter 16 was in prison with Silas, and at midnight, not asleep, but in chains, he was singing songs. Because we become a people who are defined by a greater reality than that which we feel in the circumstances where we find ourselves because we belong to a living God. And to sing this song of salvation where wherever we find ourselves, we must turn from the false gods where we're looking for hope, where we're looking for security, where we're looking for strength. And we must return to the true God. He alone can save this is why the premise of the past few weeks has been that you will find restoration in that which you revere. If you revere or you worship false gods, your ruin will continue. But if you want and you long for restoration, you must turn from the idols of this world and the gods of your heart and turn and worship the Lord for true restoration. The first thing that we see in the beginning of this passage, uh, starting at, at verse 5 really, is that God is doing a new thing. This isn't my language, this is God's language. Right down in verse, five, in verse nine. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. And the new things, exactly like what we saw in Moses in Egypt, coming out of Egypt in the desert over the Egyptians, that God's new thing is infinite in power, but it's intimately displayed. Look at verse five. Thus says God, the Lord, who created heavens and stretched them out. He spread out the earth and what comes from it. He created the world, everything in it. He stretched out the earth, everything in it. He reigns infinitely over everyone, everywhere, everything of all time. But in his infinite nature, he is very intimate. Look at verse six. I am the Lord who've called you by righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
He is infinite over all things. But he intimately wants to grab your hand and take you through wherever you find yourself at work, wherever you find yourself and the consequences of your sin and the casualties of your decision. He wants to take you by the hand and walk with you for, through your family struggle, through your financial difficulty, through your seasons of fear. He's with you. He is infinite and he is intimate and he wants you to take his hand. He's doing a new thing and his servant is at the center. We're introduced uh, to the servant in chapter 41, what we looked at last week, in 41.6. And it was clearly the corporate reality of Israel. Y'all are my servant. You remember that? Y'all are my chosen ones. And here in 42, you see the beginning of verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen one, whom my soul delights. That's singular. He's speaking of a representative. That there is a representative who will save his people on behalf of his people that represent his people. And all of God's saving work comes through this chosen one, this, this representative. His new thing has servant at the center. It's individual and it's corporate. His new thing is personal and it's global. He's a light to the nations, but he lights the steps that you take. He's saving his people Israel, but he's doing it so every nation on earth hears. And God's new thing has its glory as its goal. His new thing is about his work 100% from beginning to end. It's not, it's not something, look down, uh, look down in verse 8. He says, I'm the Lord, that's my name. I love that. I'm the Lord, that's my name. <laughs> right? That's my name, that's my covenant name. The name that was first introduced in his covenant with his people. That's my name. I'm not giving any glory to any other, none of these false gods. How does he get glory? It's all his work from beginning to end. God is a miracle worker. Old things pass. New things come. And what we see in the context of the exile is that it's actually the difficult things, the fears, the frustrations, the consequences of our sins, the anxieties. It's those things that are a vehicle for his glory. They're opportunity for him to show his covenant faithfulness. He's the Lord. That's his name. Sometimes, though, we're a people that forget that, aren't we? We're a people who allow our circumstances to speak louder than the promises of God. We believe our pain more than the promises of our king. I'm reminded in the, in the Gospels of the story of, of Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. You remember, they lost their brother Lazarus, and he was dead for four days, and Jesus didn't come. And when he finally got there, you heard Martha's anxiety. Jesus, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they were weeping. And Jesus had compassion, and he wept with them. If you want to get a little notch in your Bible memory verse belt, the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. There you go. You're welcome. But Jesus wept. And, and, and they, their, their pain and their anxiety spoke louder than the promises of God and the presence of God right there with them. And Jesus walked over to the tomb. This is unbelievable. And the dead man had been in there four days. He was stinky. And Jesus spoke. He said, Lazarus, come out! And when he did, the dead man got breath in his lungs. And he, he rose from the grave. And a new thing happened. No man had ever 
called life from a grave. And Lazarus exited the exile of the tomb into new life. When the word of God spoke and said, come out, historically, that was a first. But God reminded his people that your pain and your experience of the ruin of this life, of the fallen nature of your heart and the world you live in, it's not the end of the story. It never is. Historically, there was resurrection and there will be. Historically, no country had ever returned from exile. When Assyria uh, uh, conquered all the known world, no one returned from exile. When Babylon captured Assyria, no one returned from exile until God was pleased to call his people back to Jerusalem after 70 years because God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. He historically has worked and he personally wants to work in your life and in the life of his people. When we hope in him, we will see that he is doing and has done a new thing. And he wants to give us a new song. And one of the best books I read in, in 2019 uh, was a book called Parting of the Waters by Taylor Branch. And contrary to the last time I referred to a book uh, up here, I actually read that book. All, right? all 950 pages of it. It was amazing. It's a history of the United States during the King years, Martin Luther King, um, and it, it covers about 1952 to 1964, uh, 1962 uh, when Kennedy was shot. Anyway, it's a fascinating book, uh, and it really I get really into the the power. Um, the power dynamics between President Kennedy, who needed the civil rights movement to get elected, but then he didn't want to get too close to it once he was elected because of the implications it had nationally. But Dr. King, uh, I'm fascinated with, with him. Uh, he's one of my people I love to study most in, in our, our United States history. I have a lot of people I like to read about, but he's one of them. Um, but all through this book, it's interesting, as the new thing of the civil rights movement gained momentum in our country, uh, it had different uh, highs and different lows, obviously. But there was a song that went all the way through. And the civil rights movement, they had things that they called freedom songs. That we still call freedom songs. And they would take uh, hymns of the church or popular songs of the day, and they would change the words a little bit and contextualize them. And then they would make them their own songs. One of the songs that they did that with was a hymn that was written in the turn of the century, 1901, 1905, around then. It's called We Shall Overcome. And the first time uh, that they sang that song as their own song was in Albany, Georgia. And if you're familiar with the civil rights uh, history, you know that that was a, a real high point and a turning point for the civil rights movement. And they filled the jails of Albany, Georgia. And in the prisons, the people began to sing, We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome one day. I'll spare you. But they sang it in prison. And then they went on to sing it in churches in Montgomery and in Birmingham and all over the South. And they sang it in marches down streets of, of downtown areas where they were not allowed to go inside of the buildings. And they sang it in buses and they sang it in schools and they sang it. And Dr. King would call it the anthem of the civil rights movement 
Folks that were struggling for freedom but finding oppression found identity and security in a reality that was greater than what they were experiencing. And they grabbed the hope of the promises of God and said, we shall overcome. And in the face of violence and opposition, they were peaceful, singing, we shall overcome. This freedom song during the civil rights movement is something that that I find connects very well to the salvation song in our movement from ruin to restoration as God's people. And the song, the singing, it's part of being saved. Look what he says in verse 10. Isaiah commands his people at a time when that, come on, sing it back there. I hear it. I love it. I love it. God commands his people at a time when they were not singing. They were still in exile. Sing to the Lord a new song. Do you see that in verse 10? Sing it. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and and we don't have time to look at every verse of this, but look at verse 12, look at the end of verse 11. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Do you see this song of salvation? It is from all the earth. This is bigger than any geographical victory. This isn't just a victory for the nation of Israel who are in exile. This is a victory for the God of Israel who's the creator of all the earth. It's not just about the coastlands, the most remote parts of the world, but it's also about the deserts and the cities. It's for everyone and everything in between. The command of the people of God who know that we have a sovereign God who is with us when we navigate this world, who will save us, is to sing a song of salvation. This is why when you look at Revelation chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 9, there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation of all time singing a song of salvation to the Lamb who is on the throne who saves. And our song, a song of salvation, it arises from God doing his thing for his people. Now look, I want to spend some time in this, but I don't have time. If we had time, I would encourage you to look at verses 15 and 16, specifically how it ties in to verses 6 and verse 7. And you can take those two melody lines and you can tie them to the song that Jesus sings in Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 9. In fact, when Jesus talks about his salvation, his redemption, he uses lyrics from this passage and the rest of this section of Isaiah. Fascinating. But we don't have time to talk about all the melody lines. I do want to tease you and say it is worth your time to study it. But look, I love this verse. I mean, I love this verse because we forget who God is and what he wants to do for his people. Look at the end of 16. He says, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into lever ground, that these are the things that I do. That's what he does. I mean, you wonder, is there any life that can come from your season of death? You know what he does? He brings life. Is there any hope that can come from your despair? It's what he does. He brings hope. Is there any light during your dark season? It's what he does. He brings light. He brings salvation. He makes things new. He takes struggles and he makes strength. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He brings beauty from ashes. 
This is what he does. And oftentimes when we let our circumstances speak louder than the person and the promises of God, we actually forget who he actually is. He's the Lord. That's his name. And he restores. It's what he does. And you either know him or believe him and you worship him or you don't know him, you don't believe him, and you worship other gods and the ruin will continue. That's exactly what he says in this passage. He says, those that turn back are utterly pushed, pushed to shame. Verse 17. If you trust in carved idols and you say to metal images, things that are made, you are our gods and you will not experience restoration. You will experience shame. The command, church, the command is to sing. And you will find when you turn to the Lord that, that he is the true healer. And he wants to do a new thing in your life. And his salvation comes through the servant, Jesus Christ. He lived the life we couldn't live perfect, even in a ruined, sinful world. He died the death that we deserve, totally ruined, so that in him and his grace, we can find resurrection, redemption, and restoration. He historically lived and wants to personally meet you. You see, ruin is never the end of the story. There's always hope, there's always resurrection, and there's always restoration available through God's salvation. How do you sing? Well, first, you understand that salvation comes from the Lord. He is sovereign. He is your shepherd. He is present with his people. He is powerful, and he will provide. I, in every circumstance, every circumstance, there's a place for God's people to have joy and hope. Why? Because God is on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't on the throne. God's people, uh, God was on the throne. And in fact, when God's people were struggling during the persecution of the early church, and when the apostle John saw the revelation of revelation, he saw Jesus on the throne. And, and in Revelation 21.6, Jesus says, from the throne, I am making all things new. In every situation, in every circumstance, we can join with Jesus' brother James or the Apostle Paul or countless Christians from all time and we can have joy and we can have hope. And then in, there is nothing that can separate you from his covenant love. And we love that from Romans 8, that there's not height nor depth, there's not angels nor demons, there's no circumstance that you're experiencing, no feeling you have. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ, Christ Jesus. But we stop believing that when we start hearing our circumstances louder, the exile louder than the promises in the presence of God. And we understand the security that we have in the Lord and his work through Christ, that there's nothing that can separate us from our love, but his love, because our acceptance is based on his work and his alone, then we can have security. And finally, we get that, then glory. Glory is due to God alone. Glory is due because his work saves from beginning to end. Glory comes because he's the one who keeps his promises. He's the one that is gonna have his song sung from every coastland to every coastland, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from the hearts of people who experience his saving grace. When we find that freedom, 
to realize that this is not all about us, but it's about him, then we can say in whatever circumstances, we shall overcome. We can join the chorus of saints who sit in the face of, of, of persecution and we can sing with freedom. God commands it. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Will you join him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your saving grace that's found in Christ Jesus. We thank you that this is what you do. You bring light to darkness. You bring hope to those in despair. Lord, you bring life to the dead. This is what you do because the Lord, it's who you are. It's your name. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to turn from the the gods of this culture in our life that we've been seeking to find things that we can only find in you. Lord, I pray that you would give us conviction by your spirit to turn from uh, our status, to turn from our security that we find in our uh, bank accounts, that we would turn from the idols of our own control and our own understanding, that we would turn from the idols of our world and turn to you. Lord, please, Overwhelm us with your sovereign mercy and grace and teach us to sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.